Man, thank you, Will. Thank you, band. Uh, shoo, that was good, y'all. Man, uh, I enjoyed that thoroughly. If that wasn't for none of y'all, it was for me, all right? Uh, it's for the Lord, right? I probably just need to check that spirit. Um, for the Lord. Uh, man, so thankful, again, as I said earlier. Uh, man, we had such a good time uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, we're not trying to be cloak and dagger about this. Uh, we just, we want to keep the work that is going on in that area. Uh, we want to keep it under wraps. We, we, because of how they are there with a work visa, uh, we don't want it tied to any missionary organization. So when y'all hear me say that, some of y'all know where I went and I, I can tell you, I just... Um, that's the way we want to uh, proceed with that, just in the abundance of caution. So just know that we're not trying to be cloak and dagger, but man, thank y'all so much for your prayers. Uh, God is moving and at work in Eastern Europe. It is different than any context that I've ever been a part of, uh, but man, it is, it is really, really neat to have 85% of the population of this country uh, that are professing Christians, they're Orthodox. They're of the Eastern Orthodox faith. But 0.1% are professing believers in Christ. From birth, they are raised around church things. They've never read the Bible for themselves. In the one city that we were in, there were... 75,000 people. And there has been identified two believers in the entire city. Two. The church we were working with is working to plant another couple there. Uh, they've already got a, the building for their home, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Pray for Eastern Europe. Uh, there is a lot of people that have an association with church things. Man, even to share Christ with them. Like, I remember, I, I thought about how westernized my gospel presentation is. When I'm saying things like taking for granted that people know about Jesus and know what Jesus did. And, and, and I began to talk with this one person. We were on a, by a park bench and uh, I began to talk with this person. And I said, you know, and, and, and Jesus. And he said, yes, I've heard of this Jesus. I was like, well, that was a weird um, you know, lead in to Jesus. Of course you have, right? Not the case. He said, yes. And he gave me some explanation that I, it was so far from who Jesus, it was obvious he had no idea. And we, we started talking about the cross and I tried to kind of uh, steer it back in another direction and started trying to talk about the cross. And he said, oh yes, the cross is in New York City, right? Well, if it is, it's news to me. But, but, but that's what I mean, like people that have an association with Jesus and have a culture of, of Christianity, but have no understanding there is a relationship with God that is made available through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So the believers that are there, in fact, are, are relatively persecuted because in a lot of ways they're seen as traitors. Because to be from this country is to be Eastern Orthodox. And for them to choose Christ is to turn their back on their heritage. So many of them are ostracized in their small groups of believers, but listen, they are bought in. 
and they are reproducing themselves. Man, it was an, an amazing opportunity for me to be a part of, to invest in some of those pastors and leaders. And I was so thankful for the opportunity. So thank you. I wanted to share with you uh, some of that. I, I remember in that one city, the, uh, uh, so one city there was 2 million people and they've identified 600 believers. That's 0.1%. Uh, and then that is pretty consistent throughout this country. Uh, but, but that one city, I remember the school let out while we were prayer walking. Man, it is such a taken-for-granted thing in this culture to pray. We bless our meals. Uh, my kids and I, we, we pray before school every day before they leave for school, praying that God would make them missionaries and they would share the love of Jesus in their school and they would listen to their teacher and my son would quit acting a fool and those kind of things. Um, but it's so taken-for-granted just how we understand a relationship with Jesus. And I watched these hundreds of kids and I thought, two believers, 75,000 people. Chances are very good if, unless the Lord does something incredible, which he can do, we believe he, that he can do, those kids can live and die being a part of a church and never hear a relationship, about a relationship with Jesus. So pray, pray for those, pray for the missionaries, pray for uh, the journeymen, pray for those that are in uh, Eastern Europe that are doing a great work. That is not, by the way, that's not specific to that country. It is specific. Uh, it, it is all over. I would argue this idea of cultural Christianity is prevalent here as well. We have a lot of people, I believe, because they've been to church a couple times or hung out at a VBS when they were a kid or me, mom, papa took them to church, that they're okay. And what we'll find as we read, as we take part in this study today, we'll, we realize, man, it's through a relationship with Jesus Christ and only Christ, in Christ alone. It's not our effort. It's not our work. It's not all that we can achieve. In Christ alone is where our hope is found. And so I pray that you have a relationship, a real relationship with Christ today. And that through the context of that relationship that you are showing and demonstrating that relationship to the lost, a lost and dying world. If you got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter five. We're in a two-part series entitled Everyday Mission. Uh, Lindsay Lane North East and Maine are all tracking together. Uh, and so we are joining them in this series on evangelism. I think it's, uh, I think it's God's timing, right? All that we've been tracking through our home groups, all that we've been tracking there, even in the context of where I've been the last couple of weeks. Uh, man, just amazing how God works all of this out. How do we live with intentionality? Listen, God may one day call you to another country, maybe full-time, maybe to live there. He may call you for a short-term mission trip. I do believe, by the way, the calling of God to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Jesus didn't say, you will be called and be my witnesses in Jerusalem or Judea or Samaria or the uttermost parts of the earth. I don't, Jesus didn't say that. He said, you'll be in all of them. I believe the calling of God to all lostness is universal. But God may one day call you into missions in some capacity 
internationally or foreign or out of this context to a Samaria location, right? But here's what I can guarantee. If you have the gospel of Christ, if you have a relationship with Jesus, I can promise you you're called where you're at. The fact that you are converting oxygen into carbon dioxide at 35620 in, in Elkmont, Alabama tells me that you are called into your context. And maybe that deviates a little bit to some other zip code, but wherever you're at, God has called you on mission there. You're either a missionary or you need a missionary. This is not a job for pastors. This is a job for every believer. I heard this quote. We were at a pastor's conference a while back. I love this. This guy said, it is not my job as pastor to reach my community for Jesus. <laughs> Hang on. Don't throw, throw any stones at me. He said, my job as pastor is to train and equip for the work of ministry. Ephesians 4. The work of pastors to train and equip others for the work of ministry. My job as pastor is not to reach this community for Jesus. It's my job as a follower of Jesus to reach this community for him. That's not, my vocation has nothing to do with that. I am uniquely called to train and equip the church for the work of ministry. But it is my calling as a fellow believer alone to reach my community for Jesus and the individuals therein. All of us have that calling. So what does that look like? Luke chapter 5. While you're turning there, I brought this Bible. I was going to put it in my back pocket where it's supposed to go, but I'm, I might have lost my trousers, so I didn't. Um, but when I was in middle school, maybe, I was in... <laughs> Jeremiah's, that, that got Jeremiah. He thought that was funny. Um, as I was in uh, middle school, maybe transitioning to high school, somewhere around that time, uh, a friend of mine, a mentor of mine, told me that I need to be ready to share Christ with people at a moment's notice. And this was kind of before the apps on the phones and all that kind of stuff. We had mobile devices, flip phones, and things like that, but it just wasn't as readily available. And so I remember carrying around this Bible right here, and I had to look for it, and I actually had to like pick up some things and look under things, which is hard for us men to do. Uh, but I found it. I found it. And I remember finding this Bible. It was the smallest Bible I could possibly find in the translation that I liked. And I remember getting it, and I remember even in Lifeway, which you'll get some weird looks, by the way. You start putting, your, putting Bibles, you're in Lifeway, and you're buying Bibles, and you're seeing if they'll fit in your back pocket. Like, you get weird looks of that. Like, is this guy about to steal a Bible? Like, hello, hell express? Like, but I'm getting, I, I get this Bible, and the whole premise of it was for me to make a decision every time it was in my back pocket to live with a level of intentionality that I did not live without this in my around me. That I would make a decision today, God, I want to make myself available to have a conversation with somebody, whether it's about lostness or whether it's about accountability or whether it's about discipleship. But I want to live with a level of intentionality that I would not do without this Bible in my back pocket. That every time I sit down, I recognize that it's there. Every time that I'm around, like I just, I know it's there. And that's what it looked like in middle school and high school for me to live with intentionality. I was looking through here. I still have lists of names of people that I knew that were lost. The idea was convenience. It's in your fits in your back pocket. You can take it with you as you go. 
But when I had this Bible, I, and I, I wore it and I kept it with me, I was much more intentional than when I didn't. My question to you is how intentional are we to be missionaries where we are at? I mentioned praying with my kids. One thing we pray every single Sunday or every single day, God, help us to share the love of Jesus with Elkmont. Help us to be missionaries at our school and where we work, the homes that we're in. Every single day, living with intentionality. Everyday mission is what Christ has called us to do. In order to do that, we need to, number one, we need to identify. Number two, we need to invest. We need to identify what God is doing and where God is moving, and then we need to invest in those areas. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus finds himself in a very interesting spot. He is between ministry obligations. He has performed tons of miracles. He's tired. He's give out, right? If you were helping break down last night, uh, you probably felt tired and gave out. And he was moving to another place where he was about to be tested again. They were about, the Pharisees were about to ask him a series of questions to test him. But Jesus finds himself in this transitionary period of time where anybody would be like, hey, it's okay, focus on you, self-care, hashtag self-care, right? But instead of focusing on himself, Jesus looked and was sensitive to the activity of God in his context. Listen what it says. Luke chapter 5 verse 27. After this he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth and he said to him follow me. The tax collector. Levi this random guy Jesus is on the way walking somewhere. It doesn't even seem like a super intentional. Hark young Levi. It's a hey follow me. Listen what happens. And immediately, leaving everything, he rose and he followed Jesus. He followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat with tax collectors and drink, or eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous but the sinners to repentance. So the first thing we see there is that Jesus identifies Matthew. Jesus identifies Matthew. It says after he went out, he saw a tax collector named Levi. It is actually Matthew's account. We'll let Matthew call himself what Matthew wants to call him. We live in the South. We're okay with double names, right? Two names, Maddie Bell, right? We're, we're okay with this. So Matthew calls himself Matthew. All the other disciples are call him Levi, but he's sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Of all the people that Jesus could have ministered to, this was a, a very particularly weird option. This is a weird person for Jesus to choose. Uh, Levi quite possibly, Matthew quite possibly, Matthew Levi, quite possibly, was the most hated person in that region. Uh, when the Romans came in and they took over many of the conquered territories, uh, in an effort to win goodwill, they didn't want to charge uh, taxes at spear point, right? They didn't want a centurion going around collecting the taxes. Sometimes that happened. But what they would like to do is they would like to take a national of the region and to appoint that person as a tax collector. 
And so they would do that in, in, in order to in, in maybe get endear some type of support for it was easier to pay to a national than it was to pay Rome directly. But this really backfired. And the tax collectors were like the worst example of humanity for the Israelites. They weren't just, they were Hebrews, but they were sellout Hebrews. They had sold their soul to the dollar. They were very wealthy. It was a very lucrative business. And in fact, many of them, because they were already sellouts, didn't mind even selling out more and charging the people over what was actually owed for, to Rome. And so they would live off the margin, off the increase of jacked up taxes. So these people were sellouts and they were hated in the, in the, the groups of people that they run with. And so if I'm creating a small group of people to lead a gigantic movement that is the kingdom of God, I don't know that I'm choosing the most hated guy in the room, but that's exactly who Jesus invites. In the middle, middle of a busy schedule, in the middle of a lot of stuff going on, he was intentional with this young man. Intentional with Matthew. Can I ask you this? In your schedule, does God have the opportunity to interrupt you? Does God have the opportunity to interrupt your schedule? Think back on your week. At what point in your week did you allow God to use you in some unplanned way to make an eternal difference in the life of others? According to Experiencing God, which we're going through in our men's and women's study, God is always at work. And that's not according to Henry Blackaby. It's according to Scripture itself. God is always at work. So it's not that God's not working. It is sometimes the fact that we aren't recognizing where God is working Maybe we live a little less in intimacy with God than we like, would like others to believe. But does God have the opportunity to interrupt your schedule? To make you sensitive to what he is doing in the life of somebody else. It's exactly what we see in Jesus. And listen, there's nobody busier than the Son of God, right? Think about this Bible, right? I mean, in, in all of the things that I had to worry about, Classes and scholarships and girls and sports and all the things that I had to work. Oh, I mean, I was busy. I would look at me back then and be like, you had no idea, buddy. Uh, but I was busy. But did God have the opportunity to interrupt what I was doing to be a part of what he's doing? Now, if that's convicting for you, it's going to get worse. Because Jesus ain't looking for little ways that he can peek into your schedule. That's not what he's looking for. That's not what surrender looks like. Surrender doesn't look like, okay, God, I'll give you this window. What surrender looks like is, God, here is all of me. Here is all of my schedule. Here is all of my agenda. Here is everything that I am or ever hope to be. Now you do what you will. He's not looking for ways to peek into your schedule, folks. Pencil Jesus in. He's looking for every bit of you. 
He's looking for that relationship. What did he tell Matthew? It's so simple. We've been over this. He told Matthew the same thing he told four Galilean fishermen. He didn't say, become a member of a church and then come follow me. He didn't say, get involved in a home group and then come follow me. He didn't say, uh, read your Bible a whole lot and pray like you should and come follow me. He didn't say, put down all of the bad habits and follow me. What he said was, follow me. Follow me, because if we as the church get a relationship with Jesus right, if we get following Jesus right, everything else will take care of itself. But when we begin to place our focus on anything other than follow me, follow Christ, being with him, when we place it on anything else, we miss the ball entirely. Follow me. You go, no, 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 no. He told the four Galilean fishermen that he would be fishers of men. No, he didn't. He didn't say be fishers of men. He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's only through the intimacy of a relationship. This thing that I was watching in Eastern Europe being so tragically absent from people's lives. They may come to church and they may give a tithe and they may kiss an icon and they may dot, dot, dot. But have no idea what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It should never not overwhelm us that the creator of this universe desires for you to be in relationship with him. If that, if that ever in our minds computes to make sense, we are in trouble spiritually. God has invited us into a relationship with him. And that reality should drive everything that we do. And so Jesus, in, he, he first identifies Matthew. He gives opportunity for God to work through him. He sees, he senses what the Holy Spirit is doing in Matthew's life and he calls Matthew to respond. And Matthew does just that. But he doesn't just invite, he doesn't just uh, identify Matthew. He invests in Matthew as well. Point two, he invests in Matthew. Luke 5.27, after this, he, or excuse me, uh, 5.28, and leaving everything, he rose and he followed him. Now, when we look at that, we go, well, how is Jesus investing in him? The initial command of follow me was exactly what the, the command that a rabbi would give to a follower who wanted to be his apprentice. The command of a rabbi to follow me meant that this person would be under his tutelage and his life, be a part of his life until that relationship was, was gone, right? Until he had learned everything that he needed to learn. And so follow me sounds like, hey, come over here with me to this place. That's not what Jesus was saying. He was saying, follow me. And, and the reason why he followed him, listen, if it's just, hey, come with me to this place, Matthew could have taken his tax stuff. Hang on one second, Jesus, let me collect it all and let me go. I'll follow you, and then we'll set up here, and I'll set up shop over here. No, Matthew knew exactly what that meant. So Matthew didn't bother to collect all of his things. Matthew immediately got up. He left everything, and he followed Jesus. Why? Because Jesus said, follow him. He said, follow him, and that meant that he was inviting him into relationship. 
he would be his rabbi, he would be learning under them. And then we see that, right, in the disciples. Three and a half years or so of ministry. Then they do, they ate the same food that Jesus ate, they drank the same drink, they breathed the same air, they laid on the same uh, in the same homes. They they were they were together non-stop. Jesus wasn't just inviting them into relationship, right? He wasn't just saying, Hey, here's this relationship with God. He was inviting him into himself. And so what we see then is Jesus invests in Matthew. He invests in him. He does life with him. Before we get into that, look at the cost of following Jesus. We see the same thing from the four Galilean fishermen. They left everything, including pops. Old daddy Zebedee, just chilling with all the nets and all the fish and all the boats. Bye, Dad. Jesus said, follow me. Immediately they left everything. They knew what Jesus was calling them to. An abandonment of their life before to receive a new life walked out in intimacy with Jesus. That's what they were doing. By the way, that command reverberates through time. Reverberates even to us today. If you in here have a relationship with Christ, what that means is you have accepted the end of God's invitation to follow him, to follow Christ. That came without reservation or it didn't come at all. It came with total surrender of everything that you have or it didn't come at all. It is the abandonment our life to find life in Christ. That is the call of discipleship. That is the call of evangelism. And so he tells them, he invites them into this relationship, right? I love uh, one of the guys I was speaking with in, the, in the, the mission trip I was in. He looked at me and he said, to follow Jesus means that I'm a traitor to my people. You know, we don't really get the whole, you must hate your father, mother, your, your children, right, your, even your own self. We don't really get that in this culture to the maximum. But there, they understood to turn their face to Jesus meant to turn their back on everything else. They were ostracized in the groups of people they can, but they knew that. And that's why they did not enter a relationship with Jesus lightly. Sometimes we can be so flippant in how we talk about what it means to be a follower of Jesus that I believe we miss what being a follower of Jesus is about all to begin with. For me to live my life as a follower of Jesus means that I am called to live a life like Jesus. If I can say, if I say that I am a follower of Jesus and my life looks nothing like it, then my friend, I am not a follower of Jesus. I could try all day long to convince you that I am this amazing triathlete. That I swim and that I run and that I bike without fail. Matter of fact, one of the missionaries, that's what they did. and made me feel terrible. He, he's super active. And they're like, yeah, we just run to, we just run to our ministry sites every day. Well, that's great. I drove. And I'll do it again. Um, again and again and again. But I can try to convince you all day long that I am a follower of some incredible athletic regimen. But you know what you do? You look at my life, my, my life, you look at my body. It does not reflect this reality. I just wonder if 
the lost are doing the same thing to us in the church. Oh, Jesus is the most important thing to me. There ain't nothing in this world I need. Everything I need, he has. And the world's going, boy, it don't look like it. To be a follower of Jesus means to be invited in to relationship. And this is what we see Jesus doing, investing in those that he was a part of. Matthew ended life on his own terms and he began to follow Jesus. Jesus would invest unlimited time and energy into his disciples. Reproducing what he had in Christ to see lived out in others. One pastor said, Jesus influenced the disciples by doing life with them. In that way, they picked up his beliefs, his values, his priorities, his methods, his thinking, his heart, his skills, everything. They learned from him. This was a discipleship process. Follow me and I will make you. This wasn't just true of Jesus, this is true of others as well. This is true of those that have relationship with Jesus after Jesus was gone. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2. First Thessalonians 2, verse 7. Paul talks about his relationship with the church of Thessalonica. And do we know what, do we realize what, I know there are books of the Bible, but do we recognize what that actually means, what that is, what Paul's letters really are? Every book that Paul wrote was correspondence to a church that he was not at at the present time. It doesn't make sense for him to write a letter if he's in person there. So every single letter, some two-thirds of the New Testament or more of the New Testament is written to the church. It is written as letters. We see this in other disciples. After Paul gets done with all of his letters, they're not chronological, I understand that. But then we have a category called general letters. And what that means is other men of God who are communicating to other churches that they have invested in, right? They are making a difference. They are giving time, effort, and energy to see people mature and to who God has called them to be. Listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2. Beginning in verse 7. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now I can't relate to this. He actually later refers to himself as a father. That is rearing his children in the way that they should go. As well. But if you got kids... You are keenly aware of the investment that is required to raise them to not be crack-smoking atheists, right? Like, to not go to jail. Like, sometimes I'm wondering, like, I don't know if it's going to happen, middle kid. Uh, but, <laughs> but, think about how much time and energy God has called me to invest in my children, called their mother to nurture and love them and support them. And Paul says, just like this, I have nurtured and cared for you. Listen, uh, Andy John uh, sent this out to all of our uh, senior staff. If you want to finish fast, 
go alone. But if you want to go far, take someone with you. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, take someone with you. Maturity in the body of Christ is not just I want to finish well for Jesus. It's I want, I want to do everything in my power not to finish well alone. To bring people into discipleship. And y'all, you won't find in the Bible anybody who has truly understood relationship with Jesus and responded in a relationship with Jesus who does not seek to see that relationship in others and who does not invest tirelessly to see that it grows and is nurtured and matured. So, we cannot be in the center of God's will if we are not reproducing in others. If we are not showing people, let me tell you, not I'm some spiritual giant, but let me tell you about what Christ has done in me. And we expose people to others because what we see here is not just Matthew, um, or see Jesus' investment in Matthew, right? But we also see Matthew's investment in others. Having experienced relationship with Jesus. He hoards it to himself and he has one-on-one time with Jesus and he doesn't invite anybody. Nope. He uses the tools and the resources at his disposal to invite as many people as would come. Now that was probably a limited crowd because a lot of people didn't like Matthew. But he invited all of his, who, who do I invite? Who do I need to, I need to share with somebody. I need to get, get Jesus in the same room with other people. What do I do? What do I do? I know, I'll go to all the other outcasts, all the other people that are hated. I'll go to all the other tax collectors and tell them to come over to my house. Let's be a part, let's have a party. Let's be a part of something. He invites all these people in. Why? Because it is our job as the redeemed to expose people to Jesus. That's why you're still here. Otherwise, the best place for you to die would have been the altar in your seat when you surrendered your life to Jesus. There's no point for you anymore. The fact that you are still breathing tells me that God has called you then to expose the gospel, uh, expose other people to the gospel, to the, what Jesus has done in your heart to live intentionally. It says in verse 29, Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. What was he doing? Just using what he could to get people to Jesus. When Jesus was walking around, that's what you did. Got to get Jesus in the same room with these guys. Today, we are the exposure of Jesus to the world. We are his temple. If the world is going to see Jesus, they're going to see it through our relationship with him. And so Matthew wasn't just inviting him to relationship, just like Jesus, he wasn't just inviting him into a relationship with God. He was inviting them into a relationship with himself. 
Let me take time from my schedule to invest in disciple. May I prioritize this in my life? Matthew left the tax tables and he went to the dinner table, bringing people in to see Jesus. Colossians 1, 27 through 28. This is not in your notes. You can turn there if you'd like. Colossians 1, 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery. All right? To them God chose to make known among the Gentiles, among all the pagans, among all the people that didn't know about Jesus, the riches of the glory of his mystery. What was that mystery? Which is Christ in you. This is evangelism on an everyday basis. We don't just invite them to Christ, we invite them to ourselves. It is Christ in you. Do not think that God has called you to cold call evangelism and to peace out, buddy. Hope you figure it out on your own. God has called us to the context of relationship to invite people to a relationship with him, but to offer ourselves to them in relationship as well. The hope of the gospel to the Gentiles is Christ in you. The hope of glory. It's the hope of glory. Well, whose glory? It's not our glory. It's God's glory. It's why we're still here to expose Christ to others. Expose others to Christ. To a relationship that is within us. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so it's up to us. It's up to us to expose people to Jesus. But then, it's up to God to do the rest. You can't save a soul. And us as a church, we can build programs and ministries and all these different things. Home groups and organize events, sling cotton candy and bounce home inflatables. You know what? All of that we can do all of those things. Only God is capable of changing a life. Only God. And so that's why we do what we do. That's why everything that we do should be flavored this way. But this isn't a church initiative. This is a individual initiative to go where we're planted, allow others to see how they can have a relationship with Christ, how they can be made new as we have been made new. Would we live, would we live with that level of intentionality in our life? Every head bow and eye closed. If you're here and you don't know that you have a relationship with Jesus, Assurance isn't found in checking a box, isn't found in raising a hand, isn't found in talking to a pastor. Assurance of your salvation is found 
in surrendering your life to Jesus. It's found in a relationship with him. So you shouldn't have to go back to a day when you were a kid to see the change that God made in your life. You should be able to look today at your life and see a relationship with Christ. It's what a relationship is. Daily walking out of our love relationship with each other, with God. So if you're here and you have that relationship, praise God. Praise God. But if you don't, I would urge you today to make today your day of salvation. I'm not asking what you've done in the past or anything like that. But you respond today to what Christ has done. It's not about trying harder. I got to get things right before I come to Jesus. Nope, nope, nope. Let God change you from the inside out. You just surrender. Come to him, give him all that you have and see what God can do. Maybe you're here, maybe you know that you have a relationship with Christ, but man, you are in turmoil because you know that your life doesn't look like that. Maybe you have allowed the tyranny of the urgent to take the place of God-ordained priorities in your life. Maybe you need to surrender that. Maybe you need to find a place at this altar. Maybe you need to make your, the altar your seat. Maybe you just need to confess things to the Lord. And He loves you. And what you will find is when you're willing to turn, He'll be right where you left Him. He's there. He pursues us. Would you turn back to Him? Whatever decision you need to make today, I pray that you would do that. If it's salvation, great. Praise the Lord. If it's rededication, if it's getting your walk in the order it needs to be, maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you need to walk that out in, in obedience to Him through what He's done already in your life. Maybe you need to join our church. Join this church so that you can have accountability to be who God has called you to be as we grow together. Whatever it is, I just pray that you would move as the Holy Spirit leads you in this time. Father, Lord, we are so thankful for your love for us that was demonstrated on Calvary's cross. That love has pursued us even to this moment. May we respond to that. May we act according to that. I pray for the one that needs, a new, needs new life in you, needs to respond to salvation. I pray for the one that needs to realign their life. When we've got counselors that are waiting, they would come and find me here at the front. They would respond to your invitation. Have your way in our hearts, in our lives, and in this church, in this building, in this moment. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand to your feet as we sing? Would you come? This is your time. Respond as the Lord leads.